Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Really glad that you are here to start out this 2019 with us. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you and I have never had a chance to meet, I would love to get a chance to look you eye to eye and say hello and welcome. Uh, Right after this service, you'll find me kind of meandering around here or out there. Uh, Well, 2019, I'm just curious. People are sort of like just incessantly, we can't help it. We want to be improvers and changers. I'm I'm curious, how, raise your hand if you've set a resolution for 2019. Raise your hand. Okay, so this is the most, I want to tell you, this is the most honest worship service of the three. <laughs> the last two services, like a tiny, small, little smattering of people uh, raised their hands to say they'd set a, a resolution for 2019, but uh, research says at least 53% of us set some sort of resolution um, as the new year hits. And we by far got the closest to 53% uh, in this room. But I get it. We're reluctant to say that we have something we want to do. And some of that has to do with the fact that we don't want to be held accountable when we know it fails in about three weeks. It's just better not to let people know than to then have them ask every time we see them, hey, how's that running going? I think I strained something. I, I, I stopped. Sometimes it's just better to not maybe tell people. But for those of you who did set a resolution, I set some. They might come up in the next 12 months. They might not. Um, I have a couple things that I want to share with you about resolutions. And some of the things that I want to say I think will eventually dovetail into things I hope that I want to say uh, later into this sermon. So the first thing I want to say to you about uh, resolutions is do not set goals for resolutions. Do not set goals for resolutions. Something that I've been learning over the last several months is um, that it's actually better to to try to establish, to seek to establish a, a new habit than it is to sort of create some sort of finish line kind of a goal. And there's reasons for that. Goals, it turns out, have real flat sides, and here are a couple of them. First of all, people who, both people who succeed and people who fail, they all set goals. My Seahawks, last night, had a goal, and alas, they failed. Turns out maybe setting a goal is actually not the harbinger of success. Another one of the things is uh, the problems with goals is we then always are living in a sense of deficit. We're always living in this place of not quite being enough, not quite being full, not quite being accomplished, and until we finally hit the goal. That's not a healthy way to live, friends. It's not a healthy way to live to sort of set a goal and then constantly feel inferior until you hit it, because unless it's going to happen in the next three weeks, you probably aren't, because we're going to stop. Third, as it turns out, sometimes when we hit those goals, that's the end of the progress. I'll give you an example. People have a goal to run a marathon. That's excellent. 
It's an excellent desire in many, many ways, except as soon as you've run the marathon, I have many friends who've said this, I am never running again. Do you know that feeling? So uh, I've been pleased to sort of find out over the last uh, several months in my own reading that, that actually it's, it's habits. It's the, a commitment to a, a rhythm that is the kind of thing that actually brings real growth. Not setting a goal, but establishing a new habit. Uh, an author that I've been reading, a guy named James Clear, just wrote a book uh, in late 2018, and he says it this way. Goals can provide direction, and they can even push you forward in the short term, but eventually a well-designed system will always win. Having a system is what matters. Committing to the process is what makes the difference. In the words of three-time Super Bowl winner Bill Walsh, the score will take care of itself. The same is true for other areas of life. If you want better results, if you want to grow this year, if you want to be a person sort of on the grow and um, in the midst of change, then forget about setting goals. Focus on your system instead. That just felt so refreshing to me. And I felt like, oh, what sort of interesting, new, fresh advice. I, I love this idea of sort of just trying to create out some habit, habits and, and maybe not create these big goals that I, a lot of us, uh, I am not going to hit anyway. But then the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized, actually, this is not new wisdom, but ancient wisdom. Wisdom from when the church itself started and planted. See, after Jesus uh, was here, showed us how to live, confronted the powers, hung on a cross, died, conquered death, rose again, hung out with his people, and then rose again all the way, ascended to glory in heaven, he started this tiny little community called the church. And we know what that church looked like in its infancy. It looked a little bit like this. This is from Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 47. Those earliest believers, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those early disciples, they said, these are the things we're going to be committed to. We are going to habitually do these things. We're going to be focused on these kinds of things. Not a goal, but a process. We're going to be committed to the Scriptures, to fellowship, to worship. Breaking of bread is understood to be communion and to prayer. We're going to step into a rhythm and a habit and a consistent way of seeking to live our life. And do you know what's going to happen? Do you know what happens in that? Skipping down to verse 47, as soon as we step into a habit, success comes. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They didn't set a goal to grow. They set a goal to step into a habit. To live a new and a different kind of a way to life. 
committed to a process. And then God did something. Then God grew the people. And can I tell you, I, I really would love to see this church grow and flourish. Sure, numerically, 100%. But even more than that, 110%, I want to see you grow. And we do that by being committed, having a habit of spending time with the apostles' teaching and fellowship with one another and worship and in prayer. This is why, actually, over this last, uh, this last school year, we've, we've sought to say, hey, let's, uh, let's make sure we're shaped by Scripture together. So we spent a whole bunch of time, I'm not going to redo the whole thing, 11 weeks of starting at the very beginning of Scripture, the opening page, and going all the way to the final page, that we might know the Scriptures, that we might know the, at least the whole big, long narrative arc that they tell. And now, as we start this second semester, what we really want to do is be committed to the Scriptures themselves. So starting today, there's this Bible reading plan, and you can pick them up in the back, and you can subscribe online, as you saw. You can get the, there's so many ways we're trying to put this in your hands. We might allow ourselves as a community to be changed, altered, transformed, informed by the Scriptures. That's why we're doing it. So as we step into that practice of actually reading the Scriptures themselves together, hundreds of us every day reading the same passage, we thought it might be good for us to say, well, what actually is the Bible? What is this thing? So, the Bible, seriously. I really wondered what was going to be the best punctuation. The Bible. Seriously? The Bible. Seriously. The Bible. Seriously! I chose the middle path, but all are appropriate. As we step into this second semester, where I want every single one of us finding a way and a time for us to read the Scriptures together, it's, it's worth talking about what they actually are. How do we take them seriously? Why would we take them seriously? So let's spend a few minutes uh, in prayer together, and I want to unpack one passage today that has been at the core of why we would take Scripture seriously. Let's pray. Father, I love this image of you tugging on human hearts and bringing them to gather around in worship and in singing, in prayer and in praise and in fellowship and being committed to your teaching. So we thank you, Lord, that you've done that today, here. Whether we know it or not, your Spirit has been tugging on the threads of our hearts to plant us in these seats. And it is our prayer that you have been pleased and glorified by our singing and by our praying and by our praising. And now, Lord, we pray that our worship would continue as we hear from your Word. But we also pray, Lord, that we would receive something from you that we would be encouraged, edified, motivated, instructed, corrected, rebuked, and trained as we come to your word. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, our rock and redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so this passage is from 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing it to a, a young man of faith who finds himself surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, that's not 100% sure, leading this congregation. And it's really hard. Turns out, following Jesus, leading a bunch of Jesus followers, is, has always been complex. It's always been hard. And Timothy, this, uh, this man to whom this letter is written, is, he's found out that actually there's, there's so many alternative teachers out there. There's so many different ways that people are trying to access and understand spiritual reality and truth. And he's finding both himself and other people sometimes um, sliding away. So Paul has written in this letter to encourage him, to remind him of the power of God's grace to strengthen him for his journey. And this is what he says here in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 first. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy, from a young, as a young child, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. These scriptures have a sort of a unique ability about them to make us wise for salvation. Do you know what what wisdom is? One of my most helpful understandings of what wisdom is is when right thought is combined with right behavior. We have insight into what we should be doing, and we have the courage and the willingness to do it. That's living a wise life. Paul to Timothy and to us says, if we want to be wise for salvation, to have both the right knowledge and the right action combined for salvation, then there's there's no better place. In fact, there's no other place to go than the Scriptures themselves. We'll find Jesus Christ unfurled in their pages. We might know Him and trust Him and follow Him. He goes on then in verse 16 and makes this most popular of affirmations about the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. Do you know how much trouble that little phrase has created in the world of philosophy and theology? So many questions spring from just those four little words. Maybe five if you, you know, do the hyphen thing. People want to know, what does that mean? Does that that mean that the Bible is infallible, infallible? Does that mean it's inerrant? Is it both? Is there a difference? As I seek to sort of come and to, to read the Bible, why does it seem like there are so many interpretations if it's really actually truly 
God breathed. What does it mean for me to read this in light of, of fundamentalism, of conservatism, of progressivism, of postmodernism, of humanism? Do I have to read it literally or only metaphorically or what? I've heard people say that um, Protestants, they, um, they don't rely on tradition the way Catholics do, that they just believe in sola scriptura, but isn't that just a, another form of tradition? What does it mean when we say that all Scripture is God-breathed? Those are really good questions, and they're worth searching out. And I want you to know that as I started uh, quite a while ago, sort of working my way through what I thought this series might look like, I was, I was eager to answer them, sort of at least give you my sense of how we answer all those questions. And here's what I've been realizing. Those questions are secondary. The Bible actually doesn't, is not interested in answering those questions. Those are questions that we bring and sort of layer on top of the Bible. And sometimes we layer them on top so thick, we have to have a certain answer or we're not going to believe the person we're talking to and we're not going to read the Scriptures at all. And yet, they're really important questions. And I just want to tell you, if, if, if you need to wrestle with those questions... I want to give you a couple titles that have been helpful to me and I think will be helpful to us. So um, one of them is this book called The Blue Parakeet. It's actually not a very helpful metaphor. It's in chapter 2. You can read the rest without worrying about it. It's by a man named Scott McKnight who uh, teaches at an evangelical seminary um, in the Midwest. The second is this book called Scripture and the Authority of God by N.T. Wright, this man who for decades has been a scholar and pastor and eminent Bible theologian when it comes especially to the life and understanding of Jesus Christ. And then third, misreading Scripture with Western eyes. E. Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien. And if you want to sort of have some of those questions, every single one of these books is eminently readable. It's really thoughtful very, very like, uh, faithful in their understanding of how do we read the Scriptures? How do we understand all the various ways that people seem to want to interpret and approach the Scriptures? It's an important question to figure out. What is the Bible? Well, I can tell you what it's not. Even in light of all those questions, the Bible is not a philosophy book. It's not a philosophy. It's also not a book of magic spells. It's not if you sort of read it or put the right phrases and words together that you're just going to sort of like rain down gold from heaven for you. It's not journalism. Reading the Bible is not like reading the New York Times. It's also not fiction. 
the Bible makes very specific claims that make it something much greater than just a fictitious pretend story. So what is it? What's the primary thing that we need to know before we go any further? I know many people have the kinds of questions that I just outlined. Some of those questions I still am wrestling and living with attention between two answers. But friends, here's the most important thing I want you to know about all those questions. Scripture is God-breathed. Full stop. We can seek to answer those questions and seek to understand how that might inform us and teach us, but that's, those are not claims the Bible is interested in arguing or wrestling with. The Bible wants you to know that God, in His loving care, in His grace, in His desire to be known, in His desire to know you, has taken the words of a page, and He's breathed His life into them. That you might know Him. That you might discover something about what He's up to. That you might have your character informed by God's character. The Scriptures in every time and every place and for every people are God-breathed. God has taken them. And He said, I'm going to make sure that I take care of these in, in such a way that you can know me through them regardless of the questions that you might have. This word, God breathed, and this idea of God's word um, actually doing something and being productive out in the world, we see in a couple other places. We see it in the book of Genesis, where in the opening lines, there's, everything is formless and void, and by God's very word, He just speaks things into existence. What God has done in that moment, God also now does in the Scriptures with us. He can create new, and He can create afresh in you, and in me, and in us, when we let the Word of God speak in fresh and powerful ways. Because it has been God-breathed. Another place is uh, John chapter 1. I love the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we probably talk about it multiple times a, a year. I'm not going to talk about it again today, to, except to say this. The God who wants to be known, who's spoken the Scriptures into existence, He now finally and fully, that Word became flesh. To be known to do work on our behalf and for us, and as it turns out, also to do work through us. All Scripture is God-breathed. And He's constructed it in such a way that it's going to continue to advance His kingdom. Don't you want to be a part of that? All Scripture is God-breathed. living and active, as it says in Hebrews, and we'll talk about in a couple weeks. It's more, actually, than just sort of a, a translated ancient artifact. 
Probably you've had some sort of a conversation or dialogue. Maybe even you, you kind of think that, that the scriptures themselves are just this translated ancient artifact of a, of a day gone by. Why would I want to pay attention to something that's 2,000 plus years old? That's the newest part. Why would I do that? Well, friends, it's more than a translated ancient artifact. It is that. It's also more than that. It's more than a history. It is that, but it's more than that. It's, it's more than sort of a description of something that has happened or of God's character. It is that, but it's, it's more than that. It's more than a story. Certainly it is a story, but it's more than a story. See, friends, I want to tell you something. There are not 2.2 billion people talking about Beowulf today. There are not 2.2 billion people talking about the Odyssey or the Iliad or the Epic of Gilgamesh or take your pick. Why not? Because God in His infinite wisdom, regardless of our questions, has said, this is God-breathed. And I have something that I want to accomplish in it and through it. It is a sort of a depository of sorts. It, it is a record of sorts, but also it's, it's a release of God's power. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful. It's doing something. It is both a record and a release of what God intends to do in the world, bit by bit, moment by moment. It's doing something. Sinners become saints. As the cruel-hearted read it, they, over time, are transformed into the kindest and gentlest of souls. In the 18th and 19th and 20th century, slave traders who were exposed to God's Word found themselves and discovered they were abolitionists. Misogynists have read its pages and have discovered the, the deep beauty and integrity and care and furtherance and advance of women. The addicted are set free. Scripture is God-breathed, and it's doing something. And God promises that it will do something. It's, it's, it's kind of like the water cycle. Stick with me for a second. You all know the water cycle. You probably learned it in third grade, and then fifth grade, and then eleventh grade. And then some of you, like, I don't know, studied forestry, and you learned it, like, in really, really deep ways, right? Clouds, they rain down, and the rain hits the earth, and it uh, waters and seeks in deep, seeps in deep, and fertilizes, provides for life, and eventually sort of filters out and sort of comes, races its way down and kind of comes back up to the clouds and does it all over again. Now what's interesting actually is God's Word does that same sort of thing. It's meant to fall down onto parched hearts and minds and souls. It's supposed to water us, provide life for us, strengthen us. And in case you think I'm just making this image up, it turns out it's in the Bible. 
Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Here we go. Now, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Just like water does that, God says, verse 11, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It's going to go out. And it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, the Scripture's friends are God-breathed. They're more than just an ancient record. They're part of God's plan to advance His kingdom. And it's fine for you to ask questions about inerrancy and infallibility and postmodernist reasonings and the feminist critique and whatever. Just take a deep breath. And also, it's God-breathed. Read it. See what God will do with you and with us. Pick up the habit. Let it become part of who you are and what you're becoming. See, the Bible, it's not sort of just like a, an intellectual thing. We're, we're taught in our educational system from pretty early on that reading is about intake. It's all sort of like, you know, we really want to be just like um, suckers, stick head. But Paul seems to say actually that the scriptures are full-bodied. They're integrated. It's not just that they're God-breathed and they, um, they, they give us good information, but they actually, they, they're useful. They help us to do things. They're um, useful for teaching. We can come to the Scriptures and we can find out something new and important and fresh about God's character and His plan. They're also useful, besides his teaching, they're also useful for rebuking. We can come to them and we can find the places where we are in deep spiritual deficit. We can allow the scriptures to speak to us and say, there is a part of your life that has still not been shaped by my Holy Spirit. Let's rebuke it together. But it's not just useful for, for teaching and for rebuking, it's also helpful for correcting we can take the scriptures in the middle of our rebuke, in, this, in the middle of our deficit, and, and this word correct is like the word rebuild. Through our exposure and ongoing work with the scriptures, we can rebuild our lives. We can put ourselves on the, on the way. Do you know that's what the first Christians called Christianity? In part, friends, it's because the Scriptures themselves, they show us Jesus Christ, and they show us how to correct our lives so we might follow Him with purity and goodness and beauty. The scriptures aren't just good for teaching or rebuking or correcting, but they're also good for training in righteousness. We can come to them and we can, we can build our spiritual ability to withstand attacks. 
that can get us ready to, to handle the things that come to us before we have to be rebuked and corrected. The Scriptures are useful. They're not just like head knowledge, but they shape something. They can teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us for righteousness. That's why we read them. Regardless of the debates and fights and arguments that we want to have, and we should have them. But in the middle of all that, friends, I just want to say this. All Scripture is God-breathed. We come to it with confidence and joy. And it'll get you ready. We get, um, we get our, our fair share of magazines of discontent in my family. You know, those, those, a lot of people will call them catalogs. And uh, I love flipping the, the, the catalogs that we get. And because and, uh, here's why I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a gear junkie. And I just love the idea of being properly equipped. I just love it. So we used to, I don't think we do anymore, we used to get this magazine called NRS magazine catalog. And NRS is uh, this whitewater uh, company in Idaho. And I'd go through that, and I don't whitewater raft, I don't kayak, but I can tell you exactly how I would spend my first $25,000 to be fully equipped. I love the idea of being ready for whatever activity faces me. I want to be fully equipped and ready. I do not want to go bicycling, cycling with a t-shirt. I must have a jersey. I know a lot of you are like that. We want to be fully equipped. We want to be ready. This is the last thing that this passage touches on for us. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Do you want to be fully equipped? Leaf through the pages of Scripture, my friends. Don't worry about your magazines of discontent. They're fun. But if you really want to be fully equipped for life, if you really want to be at the ready for whatever comes next, then come to the Scriptures that are God-breathed, that are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Discover how they equip you for whatever you will face in life. That's why we're doing this together this spring. I don't know what God has for us or for you. But I can tell you, in my six years here, we've not yet quite done what we're going to try to do now. And that is have hundreds of people reading the same scriptures every day and see what God does. By all means, bring your questions, but don't let them stop you from reading God's breathed scriptures. So we start today. Epiphany. And it turns out, 
the first two chapters we're reading today are the epiphany story. It's great. And we're going to do this for about five and a half months, and we're going to end with a great celebration on Pentecost. And I want you to be part of it. So read. Get fully equipped. Step into what God has for you and for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and the strength of this word. How it teaches us, me, instructs me about the goodness and beauty of your word and what it does even in light of or in spite of our questions. And as we step into this journey together, I pray for every man, woman, child, teenager, retiree, mother, father, grandparent, student. Lord, would your spirit teach them to carve out time? Would they hear the whisper of how eager you are for them to spend some time with you? Lord, would they find themselves equipped for every good work because of who you are and what you've taught us and the way you empower us. In Christ's name, amen.